I'm actually beginning a new series this morning. I'm calling it Our Peace in Christ, Our Peace in Christ. And uh, you may feel like that uh, I've taken you around the world by the time you finish with this message today. Uh, uh, sometimes a uh, series and a message like this, I have to uh, kind of set the stage for it. And that's going to be our goal. We're going to be looking primarily over the next few weeks in the book of Ephesians. And uh, starting out today in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, I invite you all to stand at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 for he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Our peace in Christ. And in order for us to consider how the Holy Spirit inspired this masterful discussion of our peace in Christ, it is necessary in a way to, uh, to set the stage, to lay a groundwork, if you will, as to what was going on, what's being considered, what was happening in the New Testament, and the world uh, that the gospel came to. And it's an ambitious undertaking. I'm going to have to make tracks. Uh, I'm going to uh, preach as fast as I can so y'all listen fast today, okay? I'll, I'll do, do the best I can. Uh, in order to do this. Uh, Jesus uh, promised something about the world in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 6. He said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Wars and rumors of war. And notice very quickly, we see it very plainly in the text, these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. It would not be the presence of war then, Jesus says, that would indicate the return of Christ to this world, although times of war almost inevitably spark talk of what is called the apocalypse. And, and it seems like every year people get more and more and more obsessed with apocalyptic type movies and books and things. And let me just tell you right now uh, that the apocalypse is not going to be caused by zombies. If any of you are afraid of that, okay, that, that's not going to happen. That, that's not what it is. And I can tell you that on the authority of God's Word. You might be surprised there's a book in the Bible called Apocalypse. Now that's its Greek name. Uh, we know it better by the name Revelation. What does apocalypse mean? It means to reveal or revelation. That's what it means. Uh, but of course in popular thinking over the last few years and in our usage in our country, we have grown to think of apocalypse and apocalyptic uh, as referring to the end of the world. And that, that's kind of how we've associated it. And maybe rightly so that if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see there's some justification for that thinking. Uh, and in fact, that's exactly what Jesus was responding to. The disciples had come to him in Matthew chapter 24 and asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and of, there it is, the end of the world. 
the end of the world. Now, with the invention of chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons, we've learned to live under the shadow of the possibility of a war that might end the world as we know it. It might end humanity. I wish I could tell you today that that's never going to happen. In a way, I really don't think that it is. Uh, and in that sense of this terrible, terrible war, nuclear war breaking out, I, I don't see that presented in Scripture. What we see in Scripture, if you read the book of Revelation, is a combination of exactly the things that Jesus describes here, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, uh, natural, what we would call natural phenomenon. And that that is going to bring about, it's going to be used, harnessed by God, if you will, to bring judgment upon the world. But wars, he said, will happen. Rumors of wars. He, he presents this as coming from two different sources. He says that nation will rise against nation. The word nation in that passage is the word ethnos. It's the word our word ethnic or ethnicity comes from. Um, ethnic conflict. There would also be national conflict. A kingdom shall rise against kingdom. Let's remember most of the governmental authority that was in place uh, when Jesus was on the earth uh, was in fact kingdoms, dictatorships and, uh, of various kinds. And so kingdom, he said, governmental authority would rise against governmental authority. Nations would attack each other. There would be ethnic conflict. He said these things must happen but that's not necessarily a sign, he said, of the end. Although there are other passages that do talk about wars, we'll save that for another message. For today, we just want to establish that Paul the Apostle was talking about the peace that Jesus Christ brings to the world. And I want you to understand that this peace that he's writing about in Ephesians 2 is actually set in the midst of a world full of conflict, exactly like Jesus said it was. In fact, the history of humanity is told in a story of war after war after war after war after war. There are few here today who might can remember the 1930s and the build-up to World War II. It was September 30th, 1938, when British Prime Minister Neville, Neville Chamberlain held up a copy of the Munich Agreement between Britain and Nazi Germany and declared famously, infamously, peace for our time, 1938. Holding up the document peace for our time. Less than a year later, Britain and France would declare war against Germany and spark World War II. Peace for our time lasted less than a year. The 1950s brought the war with North Korea, ended by an armistice agreement, a ceasefire that was put in place on July the 27th of 1954 until a final peaceful settlement is achieved. Over 60 years later, we're still waiting for that final peaceful settlement to the Korean conflict. The DMZ is still the DMZ over 60 years later. Many, many of you are, could remember Vietnam as I do. I remember it from a distance. Some of you fought it. 
It was the Paris Peace Accord that was signed in January of 1973 that was supposed to end uh, that conflict and uh, end uh, the United States' involvement in it. Less than, it was about two years later, just a little over two years later in April of 1975, when an all-out assault by the NVA conquered Saigon. Peace treaty. But it didn't last. I could go on a long ways with that kind of talk this morning, and uh, I'd really be discouraging to you. I don't want to do it. Uh, but uh, just talking about uh, our own nation and, and our involvement in wars and, and the peace treaties that have been signed, and many of them over and over and over and over again, with all of the pomp and all the ceremony that, that such agreements usually foster, and so many people claiming, we've finally got it settled. This is it. There's going to be peace. And it doesn't last. A year, two years, three years. The Bible actually predicts a peace treaty that is going to begin a time known as the apocalypse, known as the seven-year tribulation period, a peace treaty. How long is it going to last? About three and a half years. Read the book of Revelation. That's really a long time when you think about it for a peace treaty to last. Now, in the Bible, though, we're not talking about, we're talking about this conflict and things. The conflict that the Bible speaks of is, is always going to be centered around the nation of Israel. Always. And uh, so any kind of conflict, anything that's going on, always related, it always revolved around Israel and her enemies. That narrative will always focus there. There was a time when I used to wonder, prophetically speaking, from studying the Scriptures, how Israel was going to end up completely isolated on the world stage with no country in the entire world coming to their assistance. I used to puzzle over that, wondering, where is the United States of America in this scene? I wondered how that such an event could happen and no one would come to Israel's aid. I wonder no longer. I don't wonder about it anymore. Paul then is going to frame his discussion about the peace that we have in Jesus Christ and the peace that Jesus comes to give. And he is going to repeatedly mention in this narrative the Jews and the Gentiles. And in a practical way, that refers to everybody who is Jewish and everybody who isn't Jewish. Do you see how the Bible breaks things down? I'm glad God makes it simple, the Jew and the Gentile. But the conflict between the Jew and the Gentile was a very real conflict in Paul's day. Now, God entered into a covenant relationship with the Jews long ago when he chose Abraham, and, and therefore the descendants, we were talking about the Jewish people, biblically, we were talking about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how that God made promises to them and established them, and he gave them that land, and all those things are played out for us in Scripture. Paul would ask in Romans chapter 3 and verse 1, What advantage has the Jew? And he answered it, Much in every way. Chiefly because unto them were committed, unto the, uh, were committed the oracles of God. 
uh, the utterances, the words of God. He's talking to us about the sacred scripture, the Holy Bible. Uh, all of the Holy Bible was written with, uh, the, with only the exception of Luke who, who wrote a portion of the New Testament. But everybody else that wrote uh, the Bible was Jewish. And uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. You had to speak Hebrew in order to understand what the oracles of God were. So Paul was asking, what advantage did the Jews have? Well, they had all the advantages. Because God revealed His Word, His plan to them. He spoke to them. He gave His utterances to them. He entered into covenant with them. Now, Paul's reference to the middle wall of partition then in our text refers to that specific issue. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, For he is our peace, that's Jesus who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition that was between us. What Paul was talking about was a wall that was in the temple. And it was commonly called the Gentile wall because it separated the temple between a part that the Gentile, any visitor, could go and see, and the part that was reserved exclusively for the male descendants of Abraham who had the sign of that covenant, which was circumcision. And they were the only ones who could go into that part of the temple ground. And everyone else was left out. So there was a part and parcel that the, was reserved exclusively for the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And yet Paul tells us in this passage that all those distinctions between the Jew and the Gentile were broken down so that the animosity that was between the Jew and the Gentile could stop in a person, in himself, and in a place, in his church. So that in Christ and in his church, there could be a place of peace, that would even fit the Jew and the Gentile. Now that was a hot button topic in Paul's day. It's a hot button topic in our day. We might have thought that anti-Semitism was over in the world. If we thought that, we were wrong. Still happening. Paul wrote this book, Ephesians, from prison. Why was he there? I'm glad you asked because he answers. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. Uh, Paul was in prison, and he said, I am in prison for you. Specifically because of what he was preaching about them. And he goes on to identify that in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Oh, what an incredible passage that is. He calls this a mystery because it had not been revealed in past times. And they never really imagined how that God was going to bring the Gentiles in and that we in the new covenant would have an equal position in Christ so that there'd be no more Jew and Gentile, no more male and female. We wouldn't be one in Christ Jesus. We'd have an equal position in Jesus Christ and equal access to his covenant promises and blessings. The message of peace then is wrapped up in the message of who Jesus Christ is and what he does. The message of salvation in Christ. 
Remember that the book of Ephesians was written only shortly after the Jews had been exiled from Rome, kicked out. They had been allowed to come back by the time this book was written, but it was still very much fresh on every man's, everybody's mind. It was written only a few years before the Jewish rebellion would break out because it's easy for us to talk about the hostility that existed between the Gentiles and the Jews and how the Romans uh, despised the Jews and kicked them out of Rome and, and how they were persecuting the Jews and all the things they were doing. Yes, there was a lot of hatred and animosity toward the Jewish people. Let's also understand that that road had two paths. It was coming just the same way from the others. Because in Israel already at that time was a building animosity toward the Roman occupation and the forces were afoot that was going to lead to the Jewish revolt. It had ultimately be quelched by Titus, the general, and end up with the last holdout of the Jewish people on Masada, uh, committing mass suicide rather than submit to Roman authority. The book of Ephesians, you see, was written during a time of war and violence. It was not the end, no matter how many of them thought that, and certainly many of them did, but it wasn't the end. But it was a time of war. It was a time when nation was rising against nation. It was a time when ethnos was rising against ethnos. When we pick it up and read this book today, it is still a time when war and rumors of war are all around us. When ethnic violence is on our news almost every time we turn it on. Our nation is at war today. We have soldiers still fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq. More all the time. To me, it sounds like we're at war at home. There's certainly enough people killed in the streets of America every day to say that we're at war. Somebody's at war in this country with somebody else. And as we see then all the war, all the violence, we see what Jesus said, nation will rise against nation, ethnos against ethnos, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. And we have seen that play out for year after year, decade after decade. I just ran you through for a little while, uh, just a brief tour of the decades of my own lifetime and, and some of your own lifetimes. And it just seems like over and over again, there's a story of war and a peace treaty and war and a peace treaty. And we might well ask, where is God in all this? Uh, the famous preacher R.G. Lee preached a sermon over a thousand times called Payday Sunday, and in that he chronicled what happened when the king of Israel, a man by the name of Ahab, lusted in his heart after a vineyard owned by Naboth, and he wanted it. And a plan was hatched out to accuse Naboth of blasphemy and have him stoned, executed by the authority of the king. And while you see the stones hitting that good righteous man Naboth and beating him to death until he's dead, R.G. Lee would cry out at that point in his sermon and say, Where is God? Where is God? Is he blind that he cannot see? 
Is he deaf that he cannot hear? Is he dumb that he cannot speak? Where, he said, is God? Where's God? You and I know that feeling well. And we see the senseless violence striking down the innocent all over the world. We see war, and it doesn't just affect the combatants. It affects so many others, too. We see it. We see what we call senseless violence in our streets. The ethnic violence that prompted mass murder again just in the last few days. Where is God? Does he see it? Does he know it? Of course he does. What we're asking, you see, when we're doing that is what is God going to do about all this? Sometimes we ask like Habakkuk did in the Old Testament. You know, Lord, how long? When are you going to do something about this? How long? Well, the book of Ephesians in this section that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks when we talk about how Christ is our peace. We're going to talk about what God did. Like he said to Habakkuk all that many years ago, he said, Habakkuk, I'm going to do something. I'm going to work a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if it were told you. That is, God told Habakkuk, Habakkuk, if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. Uh, But then he went ahead and told him anyway. That's another story, another message, another time. What I want us to see today is that God tells us very plainly, very specifically, exactly what he is doing about this whole issue of peace. What is God doing about all this violence? What is God doing in a world full of war? Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace. Who's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He is our peace. He is making peace. And he came, verse 17, and preached peace. To you who are afar off, and to those who were nigh. These three statements. He is our peace. He made peace. And he is preaching peace. We'll serve as a general outline for the next few messages that we'll look at uh, out of this passage. I want to give you a brief overview this morning and we're going to be done. First of all, he tells us that Jesus Christ, let's make that very plain, Jesus Christ is our peace. Brothers and sisters in Christ today, I want you to know that peace has a name, and his name is Jesus. He himself is our peace. He's our peace. 
when God spoke to the prophet Isaiah and declared uh, the, the names that the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, the many names that he would be called. He'd be called the Wonderful Counselor. He'd be called the Mighty God. He'd be called the Everlasting Father. And he'll be called the Prince of Peace. That's his name. The Prince of Peace. When Jesus died on the cross in order to abolish the enmity that had been created between the Jews and the Gentiles, as we'll see in coming messages, uh, Paul tells us in this passage that Jesus made peace. In the place where the world would have said then and the world would still say today, there can never be peace here. Between the Jew and the Gentile, there seems to be what we would call, between the Jew and the, the Arab, the Palestinian, there would be what we would call irreconcilable differences. Neither of them are showing any inclination to give any ground. And quite frankly, I'm more scared when they start talking about giving ground than I am uh, when they're standing their ground. Because remember, the Bible talks about not this great war, but a peace treaty that's going to start it all. But in this place where there was what we would call irreconcilable differences, yet Jesus Christ died on the cross. And something about his death put to death that enmity, the hostility so that the Jew and the Gentile have a place of peace in Jesus Christ. To summarize that briefly, that means that the Jew is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and the Gentile is saved by the same blood of Jesus Christ. That means that you and I were saved by grace, the grace of God through faith uh, in Jesus Christ and any Jew that's saved is saved exactly the same way. We're going to be in heaven for eternity together. Not going to be a Jewish quarter and a Gentile quarter in heaven. Not going to be there. Not even going to be a Baptist quarter. Sorry, I bust your bubble. <laughs> Don't believe that. This passage says we'll all be one in Christ Jesus. I'm okay with that because the Bible says it. We'll be one in Christ. So he himself is our peace. Number one, peace has a name. That name is Jesus Christ. Number two, he is the one who made peace. And number three, he is preaching peace. And he's still doing it. He has written this down for us in his word, and he intends for us to preach it in the world. And he preaches it to those who are far from God and to those who are near to God. Maybe this is the first time you've been in church in your life. I want you to know this was a good day for you to show up. Because I got good news for you. There is peace available to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Maybe it's the first time you've been in church in 20 years, 30 years. Maybe you don't even remember the last time. I got good news for you today. The same peace that you believed in as a child when you received Christ as your Savior. That same peace you felt in your heart then can be yours again. We don't have to give up at peace. He preaches peace to those who are far off and those who are nigh because both groups need it. Why? 
Well, since Jesus is our peace, and he made peace, and he preaches peace, folks, that makes the devil the ultimate disturber of the peace. And he is working overtime in our world today. Since the local church is the primary place where God puts this peace on display, and we'll see that play out very plainly in passages as we go along, the enemy brings it under constant attack, and his goal is simple, to separate us and segregate us and divide us in any way that he can. What's he doing? He's trying to prove that this peace that Jesus died to give us doesn't work. Doesn't work. More every day, the followers of Jesus Christ are presented as a threat to world peace and world survival. That's not anything new. Again, I've got good news for you today. That was the world in which the book of Ephesians was written. Why were the Christian, why were the Jews kicked out of Rome? Uh, a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were trying to convert the Romans over to Judaism. And, and later, of course, even more so into Christianity, which the Romans didn't really recognize a distinction in that for a long time. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. After all, Jesus, our Savior, was Jewish. Yeah, he was. So were the apostles, yeah. Where did it come from? Out of Israel, yeah, yeah. So the Romans didn't really recognize that distinction for a long time between Judaism and Christianity. They considered the Jews to be a threat to world peace. They considered Christians to be a threat to world peace. Prosperity. Oh, we could do so great if it wasn't for just all those Bible-believing people. The more the world longs for peace, the more they look for peace and try to create peace, the more their efforts at peace fail, the more attractive the gospel becomes. I, you see, I've got really good news for you. And the good news is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ came into a world that was very hostile. Paul was preaching uh, the gospel and writing these books like Ephesians and Romans in a world that was very, very hostile to his faith, what he believed, what he taught. Remember, Paul was in prison when he wrote this book. Why was he in prison? Because of what he was preaching and teaching. And so there was a world very hostile to the gospel. But the gospel did very well <laughs> under that hostility. They didn't stamp it out. They didn't burn it out with the fires from a thousand martyrs or a million. They didn't burn it out. They just spread it further, faster. We need to start looking for this as the opportunity that it is because people in this world are hungry for peace. And I want you to know where it can be found. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, Therefore being justified by faith we have what? Peace with God. Peace with God. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you're called in one body and be ye thankful. Peace with God, peace of God. You cannot experience the peace of God until you're at first at peace with God. 
And the way to be at peace with God is to be justified by faith. Let me tell you something this morning. Jesus Christ, uh, though He was one with God for all eternity, did not think it to be a thing to be sought after, did not think it robbery to be equal with God. But He emptied Himself. He made Himself with no reputation. He took upon Himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He was born in a manger in Bethlehem, not in a palace somewhere, not in somebody's ivory tower. He was born in a stable. You ever been in a stable? He was born in a feed trough. Let's call it what it was. You ever seen a feed trough? The King of kings and Lord of lords entered humanity in a peasant family. He lived among us. He preached and taught. For his preaching and teaching and miracle working, he went about, the Bible says, doing good. And he got killed for it. He was butchered to death on the cross. If that was all the story, it would be a, a, a wonderful story. It would be a story akin to the story of many, many other people who went about doing good and trying to do good and, and were killed and martyred and died. And we honor them. But that wasn't the end of his story. Because he was born, he lived among us. He taught, he preached, he gave the message. He died, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he came crashing out of that tomb. They'd put him in. He, no wonder they just borrowed it. He was only going to need it for a little while. He just borrowed one. Didn't buy one. No, just, just borrowed. Don't give it to me. Just let me use it. I borrowed it. He buried him in a borrowed tomb. Therefore, the Bible says, being justified by faith. What do you mean? That means you believe that Jesus Christ was who He said He was, that He did what He said He would do, and that He will do what you say, ask Him to do when you ask Him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want you to know today, Jesus Christ will save you from your sins if you'll ask Him. And there's hundreds of people in this auditorium this morning that can give testimony to the truth of that one statement. I know Jesus saved you. He saved me. When you are at once at peace with God, then you can experience the peace of God. And Paul tells us a couple of things about it. Number one, it passes all understanding and it will keep our hearts and minds. But he also tells us that we need to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. And the very fact that he tells us to let the peace of God rule in our hearts means that it can be brought under threat. And it will be. It can be surrendered. It can be. But we don't have to. You have believed in Jesus Christ. You have received him as your Savior. And God intends then for us to experience that peace. In a nutshell, then, this is where we're going to be going over the next few weeks as we consider this great peace mission. Where is God? What did God do? What is He doing about all the war and violence in the world? In Jesus Christ, we look at the cross God commended His love toward us 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what God is doing. He himself is our peace. He made peace, and he is preaching peace. If you want peace in this world, you can have it. You can have it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What an incredible invitation that this is for us today.